Matthew chapter 6, if you turn there. We now look at the world's most famous prayer. 66 words. Uh, The most often recited and memorized prayer. Even unbelievers know it. And uh, though it has been repeated and memorized, sometimes kids get it wrong as they grow up. For instance, one three-year-old was caught saying, Our Father who does art in heaven, Harold is his name. Amen. One parent said he was teaching it to his daughter, Caitlin, and uh, they had been doing it every night as she was being tucked into bed, and finally it was her solo adventure. And she prayed, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from email. Amen. (laughs) I'd say amen to that as well. Another child prayed, forgive us our trash baskets instead of trespasses as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. That's kind of accurate, isn't it? And then a one adult from Grand Junction, Colorado, said, When I was younger, I thought the line was, Lead a snot into temptation. He said, I thought I was praying for my little sister to get in trouble. Lead a snot into temptation. It's been called the Lord's Prayer. It's really not an accurate title. It is the Disciples' Prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray. The Lord's Prayer is actually John chapter 17. That's Jesus' own prayer of Himself to His Father. But this here is the disciples' prayer. And I think it's a pattern, a template. Rather than something to be recited, it's a model. Because there's a couple of different places in the Scripture where this prayer appears Uh, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but on another occasion, Jesus had been praying and the disciples saw him and they came up to him afterwards and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Not teach us a prayer. Teach us to pray. Teach us to be about praying. And here Jesus says, in this manner pray. Not in these words pray necessarily, but in this manner pray. So it's a template. It's a model for our prayers. Before we notice what's in this prayer, I want you to notice what's not included. Number one, there is no mention of place. He didn't say, when you pray, go to Jerusalem, stand in the temple. He doesn't say uh, that you should do it in a synagogue or in a church. There's no mention of place at all, except a few verses earlier, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Number two, there's no mention of time. He doesn't say do it on Sundays, just pray before meals. Uh, The idea is on all occasions, our relationship with God should be open. The third thing that's not there is there's no mention of posture. He doesn't say stand at attention with arms raised or get on your knees when you pray or bow facing Catalina Island when you pray. Because it's always a position of the heart more so than a position of the body. Well, let's look at these verses today. Let's read from verse 9 all the way down to verse 13. But we're really today going to take the first part, and that's 9 and 10. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven. Let's say it together if you have your Bibles. You probably memorize it anyway. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Did you happen to notice that there are two distinct parts to this prayer? The first part, you might say, is theocentric. It's centered on God. It's all about God. It's the second part that is anthropocentric. It centers on us. The first part is our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's not till after two verses after that is done that we get into the us part of the prayer. Here's the problem. A lot of times we begin our communication with God skipping the first part going immediately to... That's how we want to start. Give us this day our daily bread. We have a need, we have an issue, and we immediately want to bring that to God's attention. Part of that is our conditioning. We grew up in a culture that places us first. Even those early bedtime prayers, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. We have made it all about us rather than about God. It's sort of like prayer has become uh, 1-800-DIAL-HEAVEN. This is what I need. This is what I want. I'm placing my order, Lord. Amen. But in our communication with God, it must mature just like our communication as people matures. When we were babies, we had one simple, straightforward means of communication. We cried. We wanted food. We wanted our diapers changed. We didn't like something. That's baby. But then we grow up past babyhood and we learn how to articulate words and sentences. And so instead of wah, we'll say, I want that. I need that. Give me that. It's a step up from a cry. Not much, but it's a step. But eventually we grow past that stage and we become more sophisticated in our communication and we learn how to manipulate people to get what we want. And if that manipulation doesn't work, then we may resort to the gimme I want, I need. And if that doesn't work, we may go all the way back to wah. But then hopefully, as we become mature adults, the conversation, the communication doesn't center on us. For instance, I have an 86-year-old mother. When I call her on the phone or I go visit her, I don't lay out my needs. I'm not asking for a handout. I'm concerned about her, how I can help her. The communication is much different than it was when I was a baby in her arms. So in our communication with God, there is a wonderful balance that must exist. God is centered first and then ourselves second in this prayer. So we're going to look at verse 9 and 10 at four building blocks, four things that make a good, effective communication with the Father. First of all, Jesus begins by having us recognize the place of God, the Father's habitation. Our Father who art in heaven. Simply stated, I think prayer should begin with perspective. You recognize to whom you are praying And where he is, our Father in heaven. 
In other words, we're talking to someone who's not limited like we are. He's not limited to one spot on earth. We are. He has unlimited resources and the best vantage point you can imagine. Being the Father in heaven, he sees and knows all. When we pray this way, when we begin this way, it's easier to have faith for what we're going to ask him for. You see, we often forget who God is and where God is. When um, King Uzziah died in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was just beginning his call by God in that chapter. King Uzziah was a good king. He was like having a Christian president for 52 years, and he died. And Isaiah knew that the nation was going downward, and the good king wasn't on the throne, and the people were tottering a bit. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, even though it looks like my world is falling apart and the good king is off the throne on earth, God the Father is still on the throne in heaven. We often forget that in prayer. We, we bring our needs before God in prayer so overwhelmed with our circumstances and the way we talk to God, it's as if we think he's weak. Oh God, this is a real big one. I don't know if you can do this or not. We're talking to God in heaven. Your Father who art in heaven. In photography, perspective is everything. Some of you know that you can take two different kinds of lenses and get an entirely different perspective. For instance, if you took a wide-angle lens and put that on the front of a camera and you stood next to a building and in the back of the building was a mountain range, it would look like that building looms large in the photograph while the mountains are pushed far in the distance. But... If you move back several steps, put on a telephoto lens, the mountain range is pulled in and it appears much larger than with the wide-angle lens. What Jesus is doing here in this prayer is elevating our confidence level when we begin our prayer. It's, it's like a telephoto prayer. He's bringing God who is in the distance, in the background, pushed far away by our perspective. Our problems loom large and pulls God into the proper perspective. Our Father, I'm praying to, who art in heaven. Something else. By beginning prayer with that perspective, it not only shows God's position, it shows our position. God's in heaven. You're not. He has the vantage point. You don't. He has all knowledge, all resources. You do not. We ought to remember that as well. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he says, When you go into the house of God, let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. All of that to say this. Be careful that you don't get too chummy with God. I know he's Abba Father. I know he is the intimate father who loves his children and will nurture his children. However, he is still sovereign king over all the universe. He's not the big guy in the sky. Have you ever heard people refer to him? Yeah, the big guy up there in the sky. You know, we're like this. He's not the big guy in the sky. He is holy, sovereign God. Don't reduce the relationship to a sloppy sentimentality. He's God. 
I've always appreciated the way the Jews often begin their prayers. So many of their prayers begin, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melecha Olam. Blessed art thou, Lord God, King of the universe. And then their prayer unfolds. So we begin our communication with God with the perspective who he is and where he is. Second is the preeminence of his name. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy or to be honored is your name. In the Bible, a name is more than a title. Some of you know that. The ancient peoples uh, were very conscious of the meaning of people's names. Uh, They believed that there was a vital connection between name and nature. So when parents would name their children 2,000, 3,000 years ago in the Hebrew culture, they didn't have the the baby name books, you know, 1,001 Hebrew names for your baby. What's the trendiest new name to name junior? Rather, they believe that you name a child either based on the circumstances of his or her birth or upon some hope, dream, aspiration, spiritual connotation that you want that child to fulfill. So when Abraham and Sarah were really, really old, really old, and they had their son of promise, they named him Isaac, which means laughter. Because when Isaac was born, they cracked up. Not laughing at God at that point, but rather, what a hoot, can you believe it? You're a 90-year-old gal and you had a baby. That's awesome. Let's call him laughter. They'd always remember that. Then when Isaac and Rebekah had their two boys, again, they named them after the circumstances of birth. First one came out all red and hairy. So they said, let's call him Harry, Esau. The second born came out after grabbing the heel of Esau. They said, let's call him heel catcher or supplanter. That's what Yaakov or Jacob means. Then there were other parents who named their children based upon a a hope that they wanted that child to fulfill. Daniel, God is my judge. Elisha, Eliyahu in Hebrew, God is salvation. Isaiah or Ishiahu in Hebrew, Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. All of these wonderful names expressing the hopes and ambitions of these parents. There were some names that I read them and I think, man, that poor kid had to grow up with that name. Got a raw deal. Caleb means dog. Um, Ichabod is one child's name. Means the glory has departed. Because Not because really the child, but the circumstance of birth is that the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines on that day. So she named her son, Glory Has Departed, Ichabod. How'd you like to have that in school? What's your name? Glory Has Departed. You're going to be trouble, boy. In the scripture, there's about 300 names for God. Each one represents a different aspect of his character. Now, again, the names of God are not just titles, but they speak of his reputation. You've heard the phrase, that guy made a name for himself. That is, he has a certain reputation. You hear the name, you think of a certain reputation carved out by the behavior of that person. 
happens with products. When I say the name Ford Pinto, if you can think back that far, doesn't have a good ring in your ears. Bad reputation. If I say the name Porsche, oh, good reputation. Your quality craftsmanship, pricey. It's got a reputation. It has a name. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name, hallowed, holy, to be honored. The idea is that I don't want to do anything that would degrade or lower the honor, the reputation of God. His name is singular. It's holy. Question. If God's name is already holy, how can I, by my lifestyle, ever add anything to that holiness? I want to answer that. I think you can do a few things. Number one, you believe he exists. That's where you begin. I know that sounds like ABC's grade school, but you believe he exists. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 that they who come to God must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Number two, you can learn what he's like. You can learn what he's like. How can you ever revere somebody whose character you don't know? You can't ever add anything to that or uphold the dignity and honor of somebody who you don't know. So we learn what God's like by the revelation of Scripture. Number three, obey what he said. Obey what he said. It fortifies the idea that his name is honorable, hallowed. I'm going to do what he said. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I say. And the fourth thing is we respond to the character of God in his names by worshiping him for that character trait. One person wrote, I cannot say our if my religion has no room for others and their needs. I can't say father if I don't demonstrate this relationship in daily living. I can't say who art in heaven if all my interests and pursuits are unearthly things. I can't say hallowed be thy name if I who am called by his name am not holy. So father implies I have a relationship. Who art in heaven implies I recognize he is sovereign and has unlimited authority. Hallowed be your name implies that my prayer will have his reputation in mind. Let's move to the next phrase, the prayer for his kingdom. It's not only our Father in heaven, not only hallowed be your name, but the next phrase, your kingdom come. When we pray that, what are we praying for? Well, I think certainly, obviously, we're literally praying for him to come back and establish his kingdom on earth and establish his kingdom forever and ever. So in one sense, it's sort of like a homesick citizen praying to come home, to come back home. Whenever I travel overseas, I do my best to try to fit in. I try to eat their food. I try to even listen to their accents. And if if I'm in the the right place, I even try to copy their accents. Uh, People know I am usually understand that I'm not from their country. I stand out as being obviously a tourist in a lot of places. But once I was in England and I thought, I'm going to pretend that I'm from England. I'm going to order my breakfast, you know, with an English accent, you know, and I like to have that one. And, um, and I went through this whole thing and this guy looked at me and he said, you're from California. <laughs> I really stood out like a sore thumb. 
But whenever I travel, I miss my family. I miss my friends. I have their photographs. I look at them. But, you know, Dorothy was right in The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. I can't wait to get back home. I yearned to go back home. And that was the cry of John in the book of Revelation. He saw home. He saw that vision of what's coming up ahead. And he said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. But I think it means more than that. It's more than simply praying, I want Jesus to come back quickly so I don't have to take that math test or make that mortgage payment or fight traffic this week. Just come back, Lord, because whether you pray it or not, he's going to come back and establish his kingdom. The key on understanding what this prayer is all about is down a ways in verse 33, where Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's sovereign control. This refers to God's rule in my life. Did you know there's a throne in your heart? Somebody's sitting on it. Who's sitting on the throne of your heart? Is it really God or is it really you? Have you made life all about your kingdom, your enterprises, your future, your portfolio? Or is it about his? Your kingdom come. The word kingdom implies control. Lord, you're the ruler. You're in charge of my life. Establish your control over me is the idea of this prayer. So I can't really pray that. I don't have the right to memorize and recite that unless I'm willing to abdicate control of my life. Do you remember that show on television? The reruns are still around. The Honeymooners with Jackie Gleason. That black and white. And Ralph Cramden is the uh, star. He's the character in the show. And uh, his wife, Alice, they have fights every now and then. And whenever they disagree, Ralph Cramden will always, his bottom line is, Alice, I'm the king of the castle. You know, a lot of us say that. Oh, we pray the greatest prayers, but in the end it's, God, I'm the king of the castle. I want my kingdom done, my kingdom to come. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Let the Father who is in heaven set up camp in your life. Set up camp in your life. Let that be his base of operations, your body, your life. Heavenly Father, your kingdom come. And the last one we're going to look at today is the phrase, the fourth one, the practice of his will. Not only your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we have a problem. Problem is we have an obvious fact as we look in our world today. We look on the landscape. We read the newspapers. We hear uh, evening news, uh, whether it's CNN or Fox News, whatever you're into. We're faced with a daily conclusion. God's will is not presently being done on earth. This does not reflect what God had in mind. Oh, we live in a beautiful environment in many places, beautiful places to go and see and say, wow, this is my father's world. But his will is not being accomplished on a daily basis. Yet we're instructed to pray, your will be done. 
Where does that begin individually with us? See, we can look at the world today and say, this is not the world God intended. Okay, great. Next, is God's being will, will being done in your life? You can bemoan what's going on out there, but what about on a personal, individual basis? It has to begin with me. Am I submitted to his will? It's more than just tacking on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, or your will be done, Lord. Here's the thought, and you should write this down. Learn to filter every prayer request through the filter that says, if God granted me this request, will it honor his name? Will it build up his kingdom? Will it reflect his will? Will it honor his name? Will it build up his kingdom? And will it reflect his will? Because isn't the purpose of prayer to get God's will done on earth, not my will done in heaven? We think prayer is, I'm going to twist God's arm. I'm going to talk him into this. I'm going to pray. And if it didn't work, I'll pray and fast. And I'll pray some more. I'll get four people to pray for my will. That's good. Enjoying as many people as you want. But you have to say, as Jesus did facing the worst obstacle of his life, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There's an important fact that so many people overlook. Here it is. God does not exist to serve us. Newsflash. Hello. God doesn't exist to serve you. It's the other way around. We live in such a consumer mentality and everything goes on a sliding scale of personal pleasure, even God. And church is reduced to a self-help program to meet my felt needs. Let's see if they have what I want. I remember somebody coming up to me. This was probably 15 years ago, and they were visiting our church, and he came up very skeptically and says, I'm visiting here, and I want to see if you have what you have to offer. And I said, well, it's great to meet you too. And uh, I just want to ask you one thing. What do you have to offer? It's two-way street here. It's a body. It's a community. It's about God's will being done. Book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4. It's declared, For thy pleasure all things were created. You want to know the answer to why do you exist? Why are you put on this earth? What's life all about? You exist primarily to bring God pleasure. Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. So here's the balance of prayer so far. I recognize to whom I'm speaking, Father. I uh, realize the vantage point that he has. He's in heaven. He has ultimate authority and all resources, all knowledge. Then I filter my request through his reputation. Hallowed be your name. May your name be honored, glorified. And then I filter it through his plan. Will this build and further your plan, your kingdom? And then I filter it through God's will for my my life individually. Your will be done in this part of the earth as it is in heaven. All the while remembering that I'm talking to my heavenly Father. Through the telephoto lens, I bring him close all the way up so that his person overshadows me and overwhelms me. Now, it could be that you've walked away from your father's kingdom. 
Do you remember a time when you were really close to God, very intimate with Him, very respectful of His will and His kingdom? You live for that plan, but you've walked away from it. Maybe you've dishonored your Father in heaven. You all know the story of the prodigal son. I want to close by reading you a modern story of the prodigal son. The setting is in Thailand. Sawat had disgraced his family and dishonored his father's name. He had come to Bangkok to escape the dullness of village life. He had found excitement while he prospered in his sordid lifestyle that he had found popularity as well. When he first arrived, he visited a hotel unlike any he had ever seen before. Every room had a window facing into a hallway, and in every room sat a girl. The older ones smiled and laughed. Others, just 12 or 13 years old or younger, looked nervous, even frightened. That visit began Sawat's venture into Bangkok's world of prostitution. It began innocently enough, but he was quickly caught in a small, like a small piece of wood in a raging river. Its force was too powerful and swift, the current too strong. Soon he was selling opium to customers and propositioning tourists in the hotels. He even went so low as to actually help buy and sell young girls, some of them only nine and ten years old. It was a nasty business, and he was one of the most important of the young businessmen. And then the bottom dropped out of his world. He hit a string of bad luck. He was robbed. And while trying to climb back up to the top, he was arrested. The word went out in the underworld that he was a police spy. He finally ended up living in a shanty by the city trash pile. Sitting in his little shack, he thought about his family, especially his father, a simple Christian man from a small southern village near the Malaysian border. He remembered his dad's parting words. I'm waiting for you. He wondered whether his father would still be waiting for him after all that he had done to dishonor the family name. Would he be welcome in his home? Word of Sawat's lifestyle had long ago filtered back to the village. Finally, he devised a plan. Dear Father, he wrote, I wanted to come home, but I don't know if you'll receive me after all I've done. I've sinned greatly, Father. Please forgive me. On Saturday night... I will be in the train that goes through our village. If you're still waiting for me, will you tie a piece of cloth on the po tree in front of our house? Signed, Sawat. On that train ride, he reflected on his life over the past few months, and he knew that his father had every right to deny him. As the train finally neared the village, he churned with anxiety. What would he do if there was no white cloth on the po tree? Sitting opposite him was kind of a stranger who noticed how nervous his fellow passenger had become. Finally, Sawat could stand the pressure no longer. He blurted out his story in a torrent of words. As they entered the village, Sawat said, Sir, I cannot bear to look. Can you watch for me? What if my father will not receive me back? Sawat buried his face between his knees. Do you see it? Do you see it, sir? It's the only house with the poetry. Young man, your father did not hang just one piece of cloth. Look, he's covered the whole tree with cloth. 
Sawat could hardly believe his eyes. The branches were laden with tiny white squares. In the front yard, his old father jumped up and down, joyously waving a piece of white cloth. And then he ran in halting steps beside the train. When it stopped at the little station, he threw his arms around his son, embraced him with tears of joy, and he exclaimed, I've been waiting for you. That's our father who art in heaven. We who have failed to honor his name, we have failed to think of his kingdom. He doesn't stand there like this. He stands there like this. And if any have walked away from following him or never known him in this capacity, now's the time to come running home for that welcome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to be able to just come to you and say those words to the one who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that's in them, our Father. We want your name, Lord, to be hallowed. You who are in heaven and see all, know all, and have ultimate power and authority ruling from that vantage point. We want your name to be never degraded by us, never brought down, never lowered, but honored, hallowed, and made known, made glorious. We pray, Lord, that you would come. We know you will soon come and establish your kingdom. In the meantime, be king, ruler over our lives. May your will be done in our lives, our bodies, our minds, our homes, our businesses, just like your will is perfectly wrought in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for your great forgiveness for Jesus went on to say that we had to say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Lord, I want to just pray for anyone who's run away from you as their father, taken steps away from you. You've been reduced to a distant entity, not an intimate person, an intimate, loving God, sovereign, majestic God. Your son, Father, died to make us free. And so we pray for anyone who has come this morning who needs that freedom, either by coming to know Jesus for the first time or coming back like the prodigal son or daughter after weeks or months or even years of running away. And we pray you bring them back to you in Jesus' name. As you're continuing to pray right now with your heads bowed, I just want to extend an invitation if you're here this morning and you're willing to make that step to the Father or back to the Father to surrender your life. I want you to raise your hand and I want to notice your hand. I'm going to pray for you as we close. You raise your hand up high so I can see it and you're saying, I want to do this this morning. Yes, sir. God bless you. And in the back. Anyone else? Raise your hand up. Yes. God bless you. Who else? Yes, ma'am. And over here, yep, and in the back. Lord, what a great privilege to see these coming back or coming for the first time. We know you're greatly honored, Lord, by that admission and by this humility and by this service. 
do your perfect will in these lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.